Chapter Seventeen of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Read by Tom Daly. After fifteen interminable hours, the street jacket was removed. Whereas just prior to its putting on, I had been in a vigorous enough condition to offer stout resistance when wantonly assaulted. Now, on coming out of it, I was helpless. When my arms were released from their constricted position, the pain was intense. Every joint had been racked. I had no control over the fingers of either hand, and could not have dressed myself had I been promised my freedom for doing so. For more than the following week I suffered as already described, though of course with gradually decreasing intensity, as my racked body became accustomed to the unnatural positions it was forced to take. This first experience occurred on the night of October 18, 1902. I was subjected to the same unfair, unnecessary, and unscientific ordeal for twenty-one consecutive nights, and parts of each of the corresponding twenty-one days. On more than one occasion, indeed, the attendant placed me in the straitjacket during the day for refusing to obey some trivial command, this too without an explicit order from the doctor in charge, though perhaps he acted under a general order. During most of this time I was held also in seclusion in a padded cell. A padded cell is a vile hole. The side walls are padded as high as a man can reach, as is also the inside of the door. One of the worst features of such cell is the lack of ventilation, which deficiency, of course, aggravates their general unsanitary condition. The cell which I was forced to occupy was practically without heat, and as winter was coming on I suffered intensely from the cold. Frequently it was so cold I could see my breath, though my canvas jacket served to protect part of that body which it was at the same time racking. I was seldom comfortably warm, for once uncovered, my arms being pinioned, I had no way of rearranging the blankets. What little sleep I managed to get, I took lying on a hard mattress placed on a bare floor. The condition of the mattress I found in the cell was such that I objected to its further use, and the fact that another was supplied at a time when few of my requests were being granted proves its disgusting condition. For this period of three weeks, from October 18th until November 8th, 1902, when I left this institution and was transferred to a state hospital, I was continuously under lock and key in the padded cell or some other room, or under the eye of an attendant. Over half the time I was in the snug but cruel embrace of a straitjacket, about three hundred hours in all. While being subjected to this terrific abuse, I was held in exile. I was cut off from all direct and all honest indirect communication with my legally appointed conservator, my own brother, and also with all other relatives and friends. I was even cut off from satisfactory communication with the superintendent. I saw him but twice, and then for so short a time that I was unable to give him any convincing idea of my plight. These interviews occurred on two Sundays that fell within my period of exile, 
for it was on Sunday that the superintendent usually made his weekly round of inspection. What chance had I of successfully pleading my case, while my pulpit was a padded cell, and the congregation, with the exception of the superintendent, the very ones who had been abusing me? At such times my pent-up indignation poured itself forth in such a disconnected way that my protests were robbed of their right ring of truth. I was not incoherent in speech. I was simply voluble and digressive, a natural incident of elation. Such notes as I managed to write on scraps of paper were presumably confiscated by Jekyll Hyde. At all events, it was not until some months later that the superintendent was informed of my treatment when, at my request, though I was then elsewhere, the governor of the state discussed the subject with him. How I brought about that discussion, while still virtually a prisoner in another place, will be narrated in due time. And not until several days after I had left this institution and had been placed in another, when for the first time in six weeks I saw my conservator, did he learn of the treatment to which I had been subjected. From his office in New Haven he had telephoned several times to the assistant physician and inquired about my condition. Though Jekyll Hyde did tell him that I was highly excited and difficult to control, he did not even hint that I was being subjected to any unusual restraint. Dr. Jekyll deceived everyone, and, as things turned out, deceived himself. For had he realized that I should one day be able to do what I have since done, his brutality would surely have been held in check by his discretion. How helpless! How at the mercy of his keepers a patient may be is further illustrated by the conduct of this same man. Once, during the third week of my nights in a straitjacket, I refused to take certain medicine which an attendant offered me. For some time I had been regularly taking this innocuous concoction without protest, but I now decided that, as the attendant refused most of my requests, I should no longer comply with all of his. He did not argue the point with me. He simply reported my refusal to Dr. Jekyll. A few minutes later, Dr. Jekyll, or rather Mr. Hyde, accompanied by three attendants, entered the padded cell. I was robed for the night in a straitjacket. Mr. Hyde held in his hand a rubber tube. An attendant stood near with the medicine. For over two years the common threat had been made that the tube would be resorted to if I refused medicine or food. I had begun to look upon it as a myth, but its presence in the hands of an oppressor now convinced me of its reality. I saw that the doctor and his bravos meant business, and as I had already endured torture enough, I determined to make every concession this time and escape what seemed to be in store for me. "'What are you going to do with that?' I asked, eyeing the tube. The attendant says you refuse to take your medicine. We are going to make you take it. I'll take your old medicine, was my reply. You have had your chance. All right, I said. Put that medicine into me any way you think best. But the time will come when you'll wish you hadn't. When that time does come, it won't be easy to prove that you had the right to force a patient to take medicine he had offered to take. I know something about the ethics of your profession. You have no right to do anything to a patient except what's good for him. You know that. 
All you are trying to do is to punish me, and I give you fair warning I'm going to camp on your trail till you are not only discharged from this institution, but expelled from the State Medical Society as well. You are a disgrace to your profession, and that society will attend to your case fast enough when certain members of it, who are friends of mine, hear about this. Furthermore, I shall report your conduct to the governor of the state. He can take some action even if this is not a state institution. Now, damn you, do your worst. Coming from one in my condition, this was rather straight talk. The doctor was visibly disconcerted. Had he not feared to lose caste with the attendants who stood by, I think he would have given me another chance. But he had too much pride and too little manhood to recede from a false position already taken. I no longer resisted, even verbally, for I no longer wanted the doctor to desist. Though I did not anticipate the operation with pleasure, I was eager to take the man's measure. He and the attendants knew that I usually kept a trick or two even up the sleeve of a straitjacket, so they took added precautions. I was flat on my back, with simply a mattress between me and the floor. One attendant held me. Another stood by with the medicine and with a funnel through which, as soon as Mr. Hyde should insert the tube into one of my nostrils, the dose would be poured. The third attendant stood near as a reserve force. Though the insertion of the tube, when skillfully done, need not cause suffering, the operation as conducted by Mr. Hyde was painful. Try as he would, he was unable to insert the tube properly, though in no way did I attempt to balk him. His embarrassment seemed to rob his hand of whatever cunning it may have possessed. After what seemed ten minutes of bungling, though it was probably not half that, he gave up the attempt but not until my nose had begun to bleed. He was plainly chagrined when he and his bravos retired. Intuitively, I felt that they would soon return. That they did, armed with a new implement of war. This time the doctor inserted between my teeth a large wooden peg to keep open a mouth which he usually wanted shut. He then forced down my throat a rubber tube. The attendant adjusted the funnel, and the medicine or rather liquid, for its medicinal properties were without effect upon me, was poured in. As the scant report sent to my conservator during these three weeks indicated that I was not improving as he had hoped, he made a special trip to the institution to investigate in person. On his arrival he was met by none other than Dr. Jekyll, who told him that I was in a highly excited condition, which, he intimated, would be aggravated by a personal interview. Now for a man to see his brother in such a plight as mine would be a distressing ordeal, and though my conservator came within a few hundred feet of my prison cell, it naturally took but a suggestion to dissuade him from coming nearer. Dr. Jekyll did tell him that it had been found necessary to place me in restraint and seclusion, the professional euphemisms for straitjacket, padded cell, etc. But no hint was given that I had been roughly handled. Dr. Jekyll's politic dissuasion was no doubt inspired by the knowledge that if I ever got within speaking distance of my conservator, nothing could prevent my giving him a circumstantial account of my sufferings. 
which account would have been corroborated by the blackened eye I happened to have at the time. Indeed, in dealing with my conservator, the assistant physician showed a degree of tact which, had it been directed toward myself, would have sufficed to keep me tolerably comfortable. My conservator, though temporarily stayed, was not convinced. He felt that I was not improving where I was, and he wisely decided that the best course would be to have me transferred to a public institution, the state hospital. A few days later, the judge who had originally committed me ordered my transfer. Nothing was said to me about the proposed change until the moment of departure, and then I could scarcely believe my ears. In fact, I did not believe my informant, for three weeks of abuse, together with my continued inability to get in touch with my conservator, had so shaken my reason that there was a partial recurrence of old delusions. I imagined myself on the way to the state prison, a few miles distant, and not until the train had passed the prison station did I believe that I was really on my way to the state hospital. End of chapter 17